Let's read as part of our series on the second advent, the first advent, of course, referring to Jesus' first coming, second advent referring to his second coming. Let's read as we think about that from the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Hear God's word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey, the, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come now and we ask you that your word would not come to us as the words of men, but as the word of God, which it really is. We pray that you would make me careful, not only about the life of my heart, but my doctrine as well. And as true doctrine goes forward, we pray you would make it so that it saves both me and those who are hearing these words. Lord God, we pray that your spirit would come and that we would see him at work and feel him at work in our own hearts, moving us to faith and belief and to joy where there's been mourning and to belief where there's been unbelief. Lord, we pray that you would give us the comfort of the second coming this morning and this Christmas. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
There's something uh, deep within every single one of us that loves a great reversal story. We love a story where everything gets turned on its head, where everything that's up goes down and everything that's down goes up, where everyone who's on the top winds up on the bottom and everyone who's on the bottom winds up on the top. That's what's going on in so many uh, sports stories. The reason people root for the underdog is they want to see the guy who always win uh, finally lose. There's this deep desire to see the underdog win. It's what happens in so much literature. It's why people love Harry Potter. He's not just some miserably treated kid forced to live under a stairwell in a closet. He's a wizard. And not only the, a wizard, but the true wizard of the, the true ruler of the elder wand. We love to see those kind of turnarounds. We love to see uh, that, that sort of reversal of fortunes. That's what makes the first Star Wars movie. And by the first, I mean the fourth, or by the fourth, anyway. This angsty teen, Luke Skywalker, looks like his life isn't going anywhere, but by the end of the movie, he's the one who destroy, destroys the Death Star that's tyrannizing the galaxy. We love those stories. We absolutely love to see these great reversals in literature and movies and in sports. And really, each of those is an echo of the ultimate reversal story that's heard in the gospel. The gospel is really, the good news of Jesus Christ is really the ultimate reversal story that's ever been told, and even better than just being told, it's the greatest reversal story that's ever been true. Think about it. In the gospel story, this little baby who's born to a persecuted people group in the Netherlands, in the netherworld, if you will, I didn't mean like Holland, but anyway, in the netherworld of Israel, is the one destined to become the king of the world, the king of all the peoples of the earth. If you're looking to uh, kind of refresh your memory about what Christmas is all about, and dads, I would say this to you, if you're looking for a portion of scripture to read with your families uh, next Sunday afternoon or Saturday night or whenever you're maybe gathered together, you won't do any better than looking at either the first chapter of Matthew or the first couple of chapters of Luke. And in the first two chapters of Luke, or really actually sorry, in the first chapter of Luke, there are two times when the people involved in the birth of Jesus burst out into song. Now, technically, it does not say they burst out into song in Luke chapter 1. But there's these two times where it almost feels like Luke 1 is a musical. People are being told that Jesus is coming, and Mary has this amazing poem, and Zechariah, uh, Jesus' cousin's dad, has this amazing poem where they burst out to sing or utter God's praises. And both times, what you find at the core of what comes out of their soul, at the announcement of Jesus' birth, is these tremendous promises of reversal. Tremendous promises that what's on the bottom is gonna wind up on the top, what's on the top is going to wind up on the bottom. Let me read you a couple of these uh, passages uh, from uh, Luke chapter one. The first one comes from Zechariah's prophecy. And in Zechariah's prophecy, we read this. 
that God has raised up a horn of salvation. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 69. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That's Jesus' house. And he has spoken, and he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers. So the hated are going to be shown favor. Those with enemies are going to be given victory over those enemies. And Mary is even more clear in this famous uh, passage that's often called the Magnificat. She, she just oozes this hope that her son, this child that she's been promised, is going to bring about this amazing reversal, this complete turning around of all human history. She says in verse 49, He, that is God who is mighty, has done great for things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Now what's amazing is that Mary makes all of those declarations about how the proud are going to be dashed and how the hungry are going to be filled in the past tense or in the present tense. It's already happened. It's as good as done. It's done. God has done all of this exalting of the low and all of this humbling of the high. It's all completely accomplished. And she's just pregnant. She isn't even a baby. But what's amazing is when you go on and keep reading the gospel story, it really almost doesn't sound like she was right. I mean, the baby had to run down to Egypt to stay away from the high and lofty king that wanted him dead. And the baby grew up to be a man who was often had his life threatened by the high and lofty religious leaders who wanted him dead. And he didn't finally evade their grasp over and over and over. Eventually, he fell into their hands. And he was killed on a Roman cross by both the Jewish people and the Roman people. His life that Mary sang as this great reversal doesn't look like a great reversal. It looks like one more proof in the pudding. The low guy always does get the short end of the stick, and the rich guy does always, things do all work, always work out better for him. And yet Mary says it like it's as good as done, like it's just a done deal. The, the poor, he is exalted, and, and the, the high and the proud, he is scattered. Was she wrong? Well, of course not. She was right because after he died, he rose again. And then after he rose again, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And after he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he sent his Spirit to fill his people, and he's coming again to restore all things. The story really is a reversal story. It's just not done. To be a Christian is to be brought into the middle of a reversal story. To be a Christian is to be brought into the greatest reversal story of all time which means that your life will be very difficult because you're in the middle of the reversal story. We're not at the end. We're not in the place where we're outside of sleeping in the closet underneath the stairs. We're not at the place where everyone's celebrating the great triumphs that have been brought upon us. That's not where we're at. 
where we're at is living in the anticipation of that great second coming. What Mary is doing in Luke's gospel is she's saying it's a done deal because when Jesus is born, the kickoff that started the great launch of the kingdom of God that would not be done until Jesus returned, it had started. And once God starts something, it never stops. He always completes the work he set out to do. Now, this morning we're in 1 Thessalonians. And the Thessalonians were a group of Christians who, like you and I, were in the middle of the great reversal story. They're at the point in the story where it feels like things aren't going to turn around. They're in the, 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 reverse, the point in the story where it feels like following Jesus really was like getting the short end of the stick. They're at the point of the story where they signed up to follow the Son of God. They've trusted Him to be their Savior, but it has only made life worse, not better. Notice some of the ways Paul speaks to these Thessalonian Christians in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Notice some of the ways he describes them for us, and you get a sense of how they really are in the middle of the story. They're not at the end where everything's been reversed. They're right in the middle where it looks like nothing's going to pan out. He says in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you. Paul says he boasts about these Thessalonians in the churches of God for your steadfastness in faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Following Christ for these Thessalonians was something they were enduring. Say that with me. Following Christ was for these Thessalonians something they were enduring. They were being afflicted. They were suffering persecutions. Jesus hadn't come back and made it all better yet. And on top of that, they were beginning to doubt that he ever would. Or maybe that he had come back and it hadn't made, made that big a difference. That's what Paul clues us into in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Let me read you these two verses, and you can just sort of ask yourself, why would Paul write this? Why would Paul say this to these people? What's going on that Paul would write this in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 and 2? Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. What's going on? Here are the Thessalonians. They're down. They're not up. They're poor. They're not rich. They're on the wrong side of history at this point, And things are not going well for them. They're enduring things. They're suffering. They're being persecuted. And then on top of that, sort of a spirit goes through the church that's got everyone thinking, well, the day of the Lord has come and we didn't get redeemed. Or maybe someone came and spoke a word to them. Or Paul even acknowledges there may have been a plagiarized letter appearing to be with Paul, from Paul. He actually ends this letter of 2 Thessalonians by assuring them that he's writing this letter in his own handwriting. This one's really from him. He wants them to make sure that they're not deceived. Why? 
Why? Because like we've seen for these last two weeks, you can't thrive in the Christian life apart from a deep-seated knowledge that Jesus is coming back, that this isn't it. Listen, God has transformed my life as a Christian. He took me out of drugs into sobriety. He took me out of just immorality into faithfulness to one woman. He took me from a broken family and gave me an intact family. These are amazing things, but the Bible makes it clear. We are to set our hopes fully on the grace to be revealed on the last day. All of those earthly gifts we've ever been given, and some of us have been given a lot, and some of us have been given a little, but all of them can be taken away in a heartbeat. All of them can be gone. All that's sweet can go sour in this life. But there is one hope that will never curdle like the milk that's been in your fridge too long. There is no, there is one hope that will never sour. And that is the hope of Jesus Christ's return. And Paul is belaboring this fact. You can't believe any letter that says it's not happened, that says it's already happened. You can't believe any word that says he's not coming back. You need to know this with utmost assurance. Jesus is coming back and it will make all the difference in your life. And so what the Apostle Paul does here is he labors to assure these Christians that their miserable lives are proof positive that they are the ones Jesus is coming back at. That just how bad the story is for them right now is actually the proof that they're the right character in the story the one that gets it all reversed for them at the end. And so I want to show you four points in this passage that sort of work this out, that sort of develop it, that sort of make this point, that show us what it looks like for Paul to assure these shaken Christians. And the first thing I want you to see is who the second coming is for. Who the second coming is is four. Uh, years ago, uh, right after the terrible tragedy of September 11th, uh, George W. Bush, who was the president at that time, uh, I, th I believe is in his o Oval Office address, spoke to the nation trying to comfort the nation. And as he tried to comfort this deeply shaken America, he decided he would quote Scripture. And the scripture he quoted was he said to all the American people, nothing will separate us from the love of God. Well, it's a great scripture. Except he left off the most important part. The part that makes it clear that that promise is not for all Americans, but for all Christians, and only for all Christians. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And what the Apostle Paul here is going to do is single out who these, this promise of the second coming is for. It's, it's not a promise that just makes everybody's life better. It's not a guarantee that everyone who's ever born will have it all turn out for them, that everybody's in the middle of a great reversal story. That's not the case. And so he highlights who he's writing to. Chapter 1, verse 1. To the church of the Thessalonians. And then he uses this remarkable description to describe the church. They are in God the Father. 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the church is, beloved. It's the company of people who've believed in Jesus. And they haven't just embraced his worldview or his ethics. They've actually been united to his life. They are in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say that these people are marked by faith and love. That's what marks every Christian life. Not at every minute we can fail, but over the course of a Christian life, this is what marks a Christian life, faith and love. He says in verse two, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. I thought of an application for the kids this week as I was studying this passage, and I just, it's a little aside. It's not really on task. Give me two seconds. I want you to notice that giving thanks is right. This is a Christmas reminder for families everywhere. Do you notice this language? We ought to give thanks for you brothers as is right. So if you're say under 18 and you might struggle with your emotions when you don't get the gift you like, I want you to know that whether you get the ultimate cool Nerf gun that can slaughter 18,000 people in two seconds, or your grandmother knits you a t-shirt, <laughs> you should say thank you. Because anytime anyone expends any effort for us, it's undeserved, and it's right, and it's an ought that we ought to give thanks. Well, Paul says he ought to give thanks for them because what they have in their lives is faith and love. This is the marks of a believer. They trust God, that's faith, and they learn to love the brothers and sisters in the church. That's love. And the reason Paul's thanking God is because nobody could create that in your soul except God. You are not, and I am not, a naturally trusting in God person, and you and I are not naturally loving people. So if you see any faith or love in your soul, let me tell you what, God's at work. And then he tells them this. He says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you. Now, isn't boasting wrong? Well, boasting is wrong if it's this sort of I'm so awesome boasting. But Paul's boasting is more like the grandpa who's showing people pictures of his grandkids. He's just so proud of what God has given and what God has done. And he says, I boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. Beloved, this is what a Christian is. It's someone who's united to God. It's someone who has faith in Jesus Christ who saves us from our sins. It's someone who's embarked on a life of love, caring more about others than themselves. It's someone who remains steadfast and endures even when life gets hard and even when people oppose their faith. This is what God does in the soul. He creates a desire to trust in Christ and be Christ-like even when it goes against the grain, even when there's an opposition, even when there is pressure in the opposite direction, the true Christian keeps swimming towards God. These are the people that the second coming is good news for. Now, the second point I want to make to you is what a true Christian life proves what a true Christian life proves. Who's the second coming for? It's for Christians, and they aren't all perfect, but they trust. 
They begin to love. They continue to endure. Well, what does their Christian life prove? Well, Paul uses this curious expression in verse 3. He says, we are, sorry, in verse 5. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. What's evidence? What's evidence of the righteous judgment of God? Well, go back to verse 4. This steadfastness, this faith, this love, this steadfastness, this faith, even in persecutions, the fact that you're pressing on and loving people, even when you're being persecuted, is proof, it's evidence, it's the, it's the smoking gun, it's what proves that God's judgment is right. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, this section where we've just read, verses 3 through 10, it's one of the trickiest I've ever read in my life. It's actually all one sentence, chapter 3, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 through 10. So I'm going to do my best to give you the sense of it without maybe following every grammatical nuance of the whole passage. What does he mean by the righteous judgment of God? Put your thinking caps on because we're going to have to put a few things together. What does he mean by the righteous judgment of God? Well, I believe it's explained to us in verse 6. You have to kind of skip down a few verses to see what he means by the righteous judgment of God. Verse 6, since indeed God considers it just or righteous... Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us even when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. What's he describing there? He's describing the great reversal. He's describing the great reversal when the afflicted are relieved and when those who are doing the afflicting are launched into an eternal affliction. He's describing the great reversal that will come when the Lord Jesus comes again. And what he's saying is, your Christian lives are evidence that God is right when he judges you worthy of that kind of reversal. God is right. His judgment is right when he looks at Christians who are struggling through their difficulties, who are struggling through persecutions, who are struggling through afflictions. When he sees those people and he says, those are the people I'm going to relieve. He's right. Your Christian lives are evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Which righteous judgment of God? The one where he's going to repay those who've done evil with condemnation, and he's gonna, he's gonna repay those who've received evil with relief and salvation. Now, I have a fear just pastorally right now. And, and my fear goes like this, and I told you about this fear just a few weeks ago, but here it is again, is that I can come to you and say, you know what? God's people are afflicted and persecuted, and God thinks it's right to relieve them and to cast away their enemies, to do the great reversal on their behalf. I can preach that, and everyone here will go, that's such good news for the persecuted church. That's such good news for people who are really persecuted and afflicted. I'm so glad that they are going to have this great reversal in their lives. 
And it does, we don't feel the weight of the fact that, no, this is what's going to happen in my story, in the story of every average Christian who's ever lived. And maybe to remind you that this applies to you, I could just take us back to the Beatitudes. I could take us back, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5 and remind you what we saw there. You see, what we saw in Matthew chapter 5, and remember, the Beatitudes are just great reversal passages again, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, they're going to see God. Blessed are the persecuted. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, the, blessed are, are those who mourn. They will be comforted. The whole Beatitudes, just great reversal over and over and over being announced. And being announced just the way we preached it from 2 Thessalonians. The ones who have these characteristics, these are the ones who are going to have everything reversed on their behalf. But I want to remind you, if I could, of verse 10 of chapter 5 of Matthew. And I want to remind you of who Jesus considers persecuted and afflicted. Blessed are those who persecute for righteousness' sake, for theirs the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil, evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Now, how much physical persecution is mentioned in that passage? I'm getting a few done. What's mentioned there is reviling. What's mentioned in the parallel passage in Luke is hatred. What's mentioned here is not even necessarily that you're preaching the gospel, just that you were living righteously for Jesus' sake. And it's a reminder, beloved, that, the, that the, every Christian's experienced this. Every Christian's experienced this. And we tend to look at, well, it was with my family and it was my mom and relational dynamics are already awkward, so that doesn't really count. Well, you know, it, it wasn't as bad as the guy down the street. He was actually killed for his faith. I was just, you know, kind of shunned. So that doesn't really count. And we spend so much time making it so that our persecutions don't count that we don't embrace the comforts that Jesus wants everyone who believes to feel. Do you follow what I'm saying? So what I'm saying to you, beloved, is that if you are someone who loves God and trusts Jesus and tries to keep putting one foot in front of the other, even when you are being afflicted and persecuted, whether that affliction and persecution is brutal and governmental and physical, or whether it's small and petty and trite, what Jesus is promising here to you is that your life of faithfulness and love proves your candidate numero uno. You are the one who is going to experience the great reversal through Jesus Christ. Amen? So, what's the true comfort that comes from that? We've seen who this promise of the second coming is for. It's for Christians who love, who trust God, who are seeking to be faithful. It's, 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 
that life of faithfulness proves that God's judgment, that we're going to be relieved, is right? What's the true comfort of a Christian life? What is the comfort we're going to be receiving? Well, let's look at it a little bit in verses 7 and 8 and 9. Verse 7, we will be granted relief. We will be granted, I love this word, relief. One of the joys of my life is getting to be here a long time. And one of the pains of my life is that means watching so many people suffer for a long time. It means those who wanted to adopt kids actually got a child and then there were deep problems that lasted decades. It means that there were people who went out with zealous missionary fervor and went out and got beaten up for having deep biblical convictions. It means there are parents who poured out gospel truth to their kids. They'd be the first person people to tell you they didn't do it perfectly, but they poured out gospel truth to their kids and sometimes it's their kids pouring out reviling and hatred against them. They've tried to love their extended family with the gospel and their family has not responded with open arms but with bristling, with cold shoulders, and sometimes with complete ostracization, complete shutdown of relationships. And my experience is that one of the great trials of the Christian life is not just the threat of losing your life. It's the threat of being so tired you can't keep going, so beleaguered, so weary in well-doing, so frustrated, so spent, so I can't even so scattered that you can't even imagine pressing on for one more day. Beloved, all of our trials have a time limit. You are going to get relief. And I'm not talking about I got a headache coming on and a couple of pills will make it feel better. I'm talking about a new body. I'm talking about a perfected soul. I'm talking about a place where no one locks their doors because there are no criminals anywhere where everyone you ever meet is like, yeah, I want to obey Jesus too. And there's just a relief of knowing the Christian life. Boy, if salvation was the Christian life forever... That would be no salvation at all. Salvation is the Christian life until we die and until Jesus comes back and then we are relieved. That relief consists in you and I and every ordinary person in this room who loves Jesus being glorified. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. You are going to be glorified when Jesus comes back. 
That is, Jesus is going to come back in all of his glory, and whether you are in the grave and need to get up out of that, or you're just standing around, you are going to perfectly reflect him in glory. This is the first John truth that we saw just a few weeks ago. We saw that when we see him, we will be like him. How do you glorify God? By being like him in all that you say and do. How will we most glorify God? When we see Jesus and we are completely conformed to his image. Now just think about that. You go from, you are so behind the times, you're not even Christian, you don't even understand the gospel, you don't even understand anything that's true, you're just so persnickety, you're just so legalistic, you're just believing some religion that abuses people's souls, you are on the wrong side of history, to boom, you are exactly like Jesus. And Jesus is loving it, and you're loving it too. Because look at the next part of the promise. We will be, he will be glorified in his saints and he will be marveled at among all who have believed. That's our future, beloved, to marvel at Jesus. Now think about our Christian lives. Sometimes we get a, a hint of marveling in one little snippet of a lyric of a song. If we're lucky, sometimes an entire song or maybe three in a row grip our souls. Sometimes one day out of seven, our devotions are like, that was amazing. But then there's, you know, you fell asleep while reading and it wasn't that amazing. And you're like, where are you, Lord? And would you please meet with me? When Jesus comes back, your jaw will involuntarily drop. You will be absolutely transfixed by his presence. There will, no be, there, will, there will not be any, oh, why can't I get my heart to care as much as I should? Why can't I get my feelings to be as moved as much as I should? Every single thing that's wrong with you that doesn't let you engage perfectly with the glory of Jesus will be gone. He will display himself like the sun and you will have eyeballs that won't get burned out by the sun. And you will be able to look and look and look to your heart's content and never stop looking for a million, million eternities. And you will see the one who loved you when you were rebelling against him. And you will see the one who kept you when you kept stumbling and falling. And you will see the one who picked you up even when you fell down so hard on your face you didn't have the strength to get yourself back up. And you will see the one who carried you through every persecution and every affliction. You will see the one who while the world said you were failing and the world said you were doing everything that was wrong and you were so unchristlike, you will see the one who believes you were worthy of these words, well done, my good and faithful servant, and we will just all be marveling, marveling. And on top of the fact that we will be relieved and glorified and marveling, we will also know and see the destruction of all of God's enemies, those who are our enemies as well, for the sake of the gospel. Just let the words that Paul speaks about the enemies of the gospel sink into your soul. He says, Jesus will be revealed from heaven, this is verse 7, with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting Vengeance. That is, he is burdened to avenge 
all the sin that's been committed against him. He does not have a cool and a detached attitude to every act of sin against him. He is burning with vengeance to right every wrong against his holy name. And he will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those aren't two different groups of people. It's just two ways of describing the same people. To not know God is to not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. To obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is to know God. And all those who don't know God and obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, look at verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Not a destruction that happens once and then lasts forever, but a destruction that never ends. The Bible says those who are being destroyed in hell, their worm will never die, and the fire will never be put out. And just the opposite of the Christian who will be finally in the presence of the Lord marveling, they will be away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. Now, it's my experience that when you talk about the judgment of God, it's almost like the first thing people want to say pastorally to Christians is you better not enjoy this too much. Like, the judgment of God is there, but you're not supposed to really take too much pleasure in it because that would be some indicator of you having a sadistic, malicious, angry spirit. But I would submit this to you. The judgment of God is not going to ruin your Christian character by making you too sadistic or angry or vengeful. The judgment of God is actually the doctrine that creates Christian character. How on earth are you going to face all of the wickedness on this planet without yourself becoming vengeful? How are you going to put down those impulses to take matters into your own hands in this wicked world? Because of this. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The vengeance of God doesn't destroy Christian character. It builds it. How will you overcome the temptation to bitterness? I mean, that's one of the hardest things in life is decade after decade after decade of people doing the wrong thing and not coming to face the consequences for their actions. How do you not begin to seethe with bitterness? How do you not begin to seethe with revenge? How do you not lose your religion, if you will? How do you not get your Christ-likeness undone by all of that? By the assurance that it will be ultimately and perfectly and completely dealt with. The vengeance of God is written for us in 2 Thessalonians, not so that unbelievers will be threatened by it, although they should be, but so the believers in Thessalonica and in Louisville will be comforted that no wickedness will be left undealt with when Jesus comes back. The worst thing you've ever heard of, the worst thing you've ever known, nobody gets away with it. They either get saved by the blood of Jesus Christ dealing with it, or they suffer that eternal destruction and that suffering away from the presence of the Lord 
and the glory of His might. So these promises are for Christians, those who have faith, those who love, those who persevere through average or great afflictions and sufferings. The fact that you have faith and you love, that's proof, that's evidence that God's judgment is right, that he was right to say, you'll be relieved. He was right to say, you're going to be relieved. You are going to be lifted up. You're going to be, you're going to be part of the great reversal. You're, you're going to be transformed on that last day. You're going to be glorified. You're going to marvel. You're going to be vindicated rather than suffer my vengeance. And the last thing I want to say before I sit down is this ought to deeply shape the way we pray for one another. This ought to deeply shape the way we pray for one another. Do you see that Paul ends with a prayer in this passage? Verse 11, to this end we always pray for you. How do you pray? In light of all you've just said, Paul, in light of the fact that the second coming is coming, that all is going to be made right, and that only those who believe and love and persevere will be saved. How ought we to pray? To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith of our Lord Jesus, and that our, so that our name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've always loved this prayer because of its deep insight into a true Christian's heart. Do you notice something that's assumed in this prayer? I love it. I've just always loved this. What's assumed in this prayer is that every Christian is just spontaneously, unstoppably making resolves to do good. That's what Christians do. They read their Bible a little bit, they get around some other Christians, and they start thinking, I want to do that. I want to, I, want to do, I want to do what's right. I want to do what's good. Their hearts just gravitate towards doing good. But we all know there's a big difference between our resolves and our actions. I mean, who I am in laying in bed at night is just amazing. You wouldn't even believe what kind of Christian I am. Dreaming about me the next day. I'm fantastic. But what Paul prays for is not that we'd make these good resolves. You can't stop that. The spirit in a Christian is constantly churning up desires to do good. He prays that we would fulfill every resolve for good. That's where we need help, isn't it? We, we, you need to tell other Christians what your resolves are and ask them to pray that you'd keep them. Anybody can make them. You can't stop making them if you're a Christian. I want to read my Bible. I want to serve my church. I'd love to advance God's cause more in my life. I want to be more faithful at work. I'd love to love these little kids more than I do. They just come. It's part of the Spirit's presence in you. And Paul prays so realistically, so tenderly, so wisely that, that we would be, that he would make us worthy of his calling and that we may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. I love that about this prayer, but there's one other thing I noticed this week about this prayer I never noticed before. You need to see it deeply embedded 
in the context of 2 Thessalonians 1. You need to see this prayer as specifically, it's not a fortune cookie prayer that you just rip out of there. It's coming at the end of 2 Thessalonians 1. And think about what 2 Thessalonians 1 has said. It is said that true Christians have faith. The true Christians keep doing good works when they're persecuted. It is said that those true Christians will be glorified with Jesus. And so when Paul prays that you would make good on those resolves, that you'd press on in every good work of faith, and that you would glorify Jesus, he's not just praying that you'd have a good tomorrow. He's praying that you'd persevere to have a good eternity. He's praying that you'd persevere in the faith. To this end, brothers, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. That's what it said earlier in the book. You are worthy because you're suffering and you're walking with Jesus. I'm praying that you'd stay worthy, be worthy. Not that you earn salvation by being worthy, but you walk in a manner that's worthy of the salvation you've been given. That you'd fulfill every resolve for good. That when you're being persecuted and afflicted, you wouldn't start doing evil. You'd keep doing what's good. You wouldn't start working by your own craft and manipulation to deal with this messed up life, but that you would make good on every work of faith by His power, so that on the last day, the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. You might be like Him, and you in Him, and all of this according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a chapter. True Christians unlike any sports team or imaginary movie hero, will experience the ultimate great reversal. We will be relieved, comforted, glorified, and we will marvel on the last day. If you are here, and it's dawning on that you're the one of those that will receive judgment and vengeance and suffering, escape from that is just leaning into faith away. Jesus Christ has died so that anyone, no matter how sinful, can escape the wrath of God in an instant. You don't need to do anything to escape your sin except trust in Him. He died on the cross to take all the wrath you deserve. And if you will trust in Him, you no longer need to fear that vengeance coming upon you, but you will be completely delivered from it. And you will come to be relieved and glorified and to marvel at Jesus on the last day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you. We praise you for your great work. We wait. Lord, how we wait. You are so content to be long for us. But we remember, Lord, that with you, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like the day. So we wait. And we ask you, Lord, to make us happy and joyful Make us full of good works and every resolve for good will be done as we wait for your coming with hope. Pray this in Jesus' name.